Well, keep something in Hebrews, but turn over to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. I want to look at a scripture there tonight. Talking about, of course, again, won't go through the whole thing with the writer of Hebrews, but he's addressing uh, generally, uh, these are Jewish Christians, and of course, uh, as we remind ourselves, they are being uh, somewhat torn into returning back into an old covenantal system, the Judaism. Perhaps many of them are struggling in how to balance their Christian walk. And just like any church, you have a mixture of people. Uh, kind of a side note here, I, wanna, uh, I thought I might do it tonight, but I'm going to wait until uh, next week. But when you get into some of the passages that are, there's five passages in Hebrews that they recall the warning passages. And, uh, and some of them, especially like chapter 6, uh, when it speaks about uh, verse 4 uh, there, it says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gifts. So, you know, you read that and you think, well, wait a minute, how does that work if we believe in a security of the believer, it says that a person or implies that a believer um, can, can turn away and be lost again. Is that what it's saying there? And one of the things that we'll talk about next week that's helpful is, is just like any church audience, you have a mixture of people in that audience. And you'll, you might have people that come to church on a Sunday that are inquirers, you know, inquiring minds want to know. Inquirers, they're just checking you out and they're, they're dabbling a little bit and seeking Christianity or for whatever reason. Um, you have some that have a profession of faith, but they may really have no evidence in the sense that they're, they're been converted. Maybe they have a form of religion and it might be conservative gospel religion, if you will, uh, but, but they're, they're kind of either superficial believers or, or have a false profession. You have those in a church setting at times. And then, of course, you have uh, believers, but even among those that are uh, converted believers, you have a mixture of those that may at times and seasons, like all of us, we may not be as diligent in our pursuit of righteousness. We may be of a little bit slothful in our walk with Christ. So, so one of the things that's helpful when we remember Hebrews is generally he's speaking to an audience that are uh, Christians but have a Jewish background. But just like any church audience, you're going to have multiple people all in that same audience. And when we get to some of those passages, uh, what is helpful is to determine what group is he addressing. And that will help us and, make, and find out that really there isn't any contradiction concerning these warnings that the writer of Hebrews gives and the uh, security of the believer. But we'll, we'll get into that a little bit next week. But Ephesians 4, just be, and again, we're going to be in Hebrews 5, but I had you turn to Hebrews 4 and look down at verse 11. He, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Just going to read this by way of introduction tonight. Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. Every way we are to grow up into Christ. From whom the whole body, speaking about now we are uh, part of the body of Christ, from whom the whole body, verse 16, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And I read that because I want you just to see a couple of things in here because uh, it expresses some of the same thoughts that the author of Hebrews gives us, is that Ephesians 4, uh, verse 11, he spe speaks about how that we are to all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, and to be a, and he uses a masculine term, but a mature manhood, manhood in a, in a generic sense, but a mature person. That the goal of the believer, the reason God has gifted the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is for the equipping of the saints, and the equipping of the saints is for the building up of the body of Christ, and that the goal of the church and the ministries and the giftings of the church is so that God's people would grow up into full measure, maturity, uh, that we would grow up. I mean, you know, you may have been around somebody that their actions and their behaviors uh, don't match their age, you know. You just want to say, that kid needs to grow up, you know. And, uh, well, there's a lot of Christians that, uh, for whatever reason, have been Christians for some time, but there's never been any maturity. And so maturity uh, of what Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 17 that when he concludes verse 17 is that, that you would no longer walk as the Gentiles do, meaning that you would no longer walk or behave as an unbeliever. And so as Christians, many times they are genuinely, I believe that they are genuinely regenerated, genuinely saved, but their maturity level uh, may not match their the chronology of where they should be as followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? That there still is an immaturity. There still is a, an area in which they can grow up that they don't, they've not seen. They've been around and been in church a long time. They've been around a lot of Christian things. But there still seems to be, um, a, if you would, a spiritual childishness about them. And sometimes you see that uh, come out uh, during times within a church body when there might be some, um, some contention or stress. So there might be some issues within the church. If you read uh, 1 Corinthians, you'll find that uh, Paul acknowledged that these were believers, but their actions were very immature regarding uh, 
their faith or where they, uh, that their actions uh, were not consistent with what uh, they should be as believers. So this maturity, this idea of growing up, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 5, I just want you to see that from another passage there, that the idea of growing up and being mature in the faith is the goal uh, when we are uh, saved and God puts us in the church, that we are there to grow and to really, uh, it goes back to sanctification, that that is the process, that is what we are to be engaged in. In that sanctifying process, we are growing up into the full measure. So believers must, um, the, kind of the main idea here is that believers must move beyond the basics of the Christian faith and grow up in Christ, okay? Uh, just like in a human uh, sense that, uh, you know, there was a time kindergarten was necessary, but you, you got through kindergarten and you got into first grade and you learn how to you know, if you like me, you, you learned to read phonetically, you know, not sight words. Phonetically, you learned how to read. And remember how exciting it was to take a newspaper, remember what newspapers were, and to phonetically read a word. That was a big deal because you were learning the basics. You were learning those things. But then you went on and you learned how to read books. And you went on and how to write papers or whatever it is. You grew. You built upon that. And so the writer of Hebrews uh, is wanting these folks to act their age. He's wanting them to grow up. So there are some, um, some lessons here or principles, if you will, for us to be reminded of concerning uh, our own maturity or principles concerning our own Christian growth. And so we're going to look at uh, chapter 5, verse 11 through uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Uh, and so look at these principles. I believe there's five of them. And so the first principle that he brings out in verse 11 is that it is possible to be a Christian, but to be slow to grow. Slow to grow. Uh, I believe that if a person is genuinely regenerated, born again, there will be some signs of life. Now that may differ with different individuals. I've known individuals who um, came out of a background that was very, um, you know, they were uh, addicted to drugs and the whole worldly, the lifestyle that was around that. And when they came to faith in Christ, there was just like a switch. I mean, it was just instantaneous change. Very dramatic change. And then, you know, certainly I've known others that maybe didn't come from such a dramatic you know, uh, type of background, or maybe they did, but their transition and, and out of that maybe is different. It might be slower. It might be feel like it's three steps forward, two steps back. In other words, but still, even in that, there still are signs of life. Do you hear what I'm saying? And sometimes what we tend to do, uh, um, unfortunately, and, uh, is we tend to think, that a one-size-fits-all kind of category, meaning that if I experience the Lord at conversion this way, then everybody should experience it this way. Or um, if I have a certain idea of what that looks like, then, uh, then everybody 
uh, should fit into that mold. Well, that isn't always the case. I mean, you think about even in Jesus' ministry, you find a variety of people that responded to Jesus in a variety of different ways. Think about even the disciples. I mean, some of the disciples you hear a lot about, and some of them you don't ever hear their name uh, beyond when they were first appointed. I mean, Nathaniel, what did he ever do? I don't know. He'll probably slap me when I get to heaven. Uh, but, but, I mean, so even in that, think about even in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. I mean, that, uh, that uh, uh, you know, when they went up into the Mount of Transfiguration, he left, he left the others, the other nine, down, you know, down, then they got in a fight and a squabble uh, with the people. So you have, even among the disciples, even among believers in the church, you have people at various levels. You have people that were appointed to be elders. You have people that are appointed to be deacons. And you have others that were faithful uh, in other ways, but they didn't rise necessarily to that leadership. All I want to say is, is that sometimes we have to recognize and be patient and that there are people who have different ways that they are growing in their faith. But here's, here's the bottom line. There should always be some level of life and growth in that person if genuine regeneration has taken place. Okay? You hear what I mean? Is that if a person says that they've genuinely received Jesus Christ as their Lord, their Savior, they've, you know, they've made that commitment... And uh, maybe their, their actions, maybe it just takes a little while. You know, some are, you know, maybe late bloomers, you know. In the natural, there's late bloomers. I had a son who was a late bloomer, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping he's bloomed. But, uh, uh, but so sometimes as believers, there are those that, that it just it kind of takes them a little while. And then there's others that they want to be, be at church, they want to be in a small group, they want to be... At everything, and sometimes you have to tell them to like, hey, you know, that may not always, you know, you need to, you know, you need to have a job, you need to have a house, you need to take care of your wife, you know, you need to play with your kids. So, but the point is, is that uh, all believers should be growing, but some are slow to growth. And so, verse eleven of chapter five, the writer of Hebrews says about this. We have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, part of this audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, he's kind of stopping uh, kind of midway here. Uh, and before that, he's, he was talking again about the exaltation, how Christ is uh, better. He's greater than any prophet. We learned that in chapter 1. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. And then in verse 5 through 10, he was teaching about how he's greater in his role as a high priest. But as he's teaching them that, it's like he stops and says, Look, I, I, really, want to, I really want you to get into this, but you've become dull of hearing. Your, your growth, your spiritual growth, has a dullness to it. There's, there's, there's stunted growth, if you will. And while some people have different ways, while I wouldn't say this is the application of this, but I think about the parable of the talents. You know, some receive two talents, some receive four, whatever. They're all different. And uh, I think about oftentimes 
uh, in spiritual gifting. Sometimes we make a mistake, or I make a mistake, and, you know, I'm really trying to get this person to do something or exercise a spiritual gift in an area, and maybe God has just designed them to be a four-talent person, okay? Or, or rather, a two-talent person, and I'm trying to get them to be a four-talent person. And talents, meaning uh, speaking about abilities, not talents like they can juggle and yodel or not that kind of talent. <laughs> but, but that, so in a way, you're, tr- you're tr- pressuring them to go beyond the way God has wired them. And that's where in the church we've got to know one another. We've got to know what giftings people have, have received. And now there certainly are situations where a person can grow into new gifts and new levels of that gifting. But he says these folks in verse 11, they've become dull of hearing, meaning sluggish or slow, uh, it might, a uh, word I know Jim uses a lot in teaching transformation is sloth. You know, they're slothful, all right? And how, how would you just, Jim, help me uh, define slothful as opposed, is it exactly the same as lazy or is it something, help me uh, maybe help others to... Slothful has to do with irresponsibility. So he says that, and think about, um, and this goes into the second one there, thank you. Christian growth means moving on to deeper levels of understanding. And look what he writes there in verse 11. He says, look, he says, um, and this we have much to say. Now go back and see what he has much to say back at uh, previous section there, verse 5, he's speaking about Christ as our high priest. And of course, he'll, uh, we'll spend a little more time with that when we uh, get in a little further into Hebrews. But he's wanting to teach them about uh, Jesus as our high priest uh, in the order of Melchizedek. Um, and he says, uh, verse 8, how uh, he learns uh, obedience through what he suffered and became the source of eternal salvation. I mean, he's really wanting them to get into some of the deep things of God, but he just kind of like stops and says, listen, I want to really get into this, but you guys are, are, are just sloth, slothful in your approach to the Word of God, that you're content kind of in this, in this kindergarten level, and I want to get you into the deeper things of God. Uh, and so Christian growth means... Uh, is that we have to uh, move forward, growing, mature, developing, and I commend you for coming out on Wednesday. Now, let's not say that you're more spiritual than those who don't, but, it, you know, I found that it to grow in your faith, even just in reading your Bible, that takes a commitment of time, uh, coming to church faithfully and, and applying yourself to the Word, being involved in exercising your uh, gifts uh, in the church. All those things are ways that God has, has grown. Look at what he says. Let's read all of verse 11 through 14. And this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers. Now, 
We'll talk about that in a second. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. I'm reading from the ESV. You need milk, not solid food. Now, typically, what part, what level of a human being needs milk? Babies. He's basically saying, you're babies. Uh, for everyone, verse 13, who lives on milk is unskilled. Again, he's using that as an analogy. Milk of the word is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Talking about growing up, maturing, but solid food, verse 14, is for the mature, the grown-ups, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, therefore, is therefore, why is it therefore, uh, what he said previous, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, he's not saying leave Christ, but the element, elementary teachings or doctrine of Christ, and go on to, there it is again, maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. We'll look at some of those things more in a minute. He's saying is that the elementary teachings of Christ are those basic uh, foundational doctrinal truths of the Christian faith, okay? And we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment here. But he's saying that I want you to swim in the deep end. You're in the kiddie pool. You're in the, you're, you're in the low level. And you, then here's the problem. Not, he's not chastising them because they're not smart enough. He's not chastising them because, you know, they may don't have an intellectual capacity. He's chastising them because he says they're dull of hearing. They're slothful, okay? They're irresponsible, if you will, spiritually, and they seem content with that. See, it's one thing if you're saying, you know, I'm really, I'm really trying, I really want to grow in the deeper things of God, but it's another one who says, look, I, I, Jesus, and, and I'm not in any way demeaning this. This is a profound truth. Theologians wrestle with uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All right? Deep, profound truth, right? But I say it more in the simplicity of, you know, kind of a, something you would say to a kindergartner or a preschooler. Uh, but if that person, and you may know this people of this, that maybe it's because they've had limited experience in their church life. Maybe they've not been in church that challenged them. Listen, I, I get it. It's not everybody's cup of tea to come into church where they're encouraged to take notes. They're like, take notes? What are you, nuts? Just get me in and out of here in 15 minutes and give me a little devotional and let me move on. Uh, I get that. But there are churches that do cater to that mindset. Now, in fairness, sometimes the churches, I'm not talking about false, you know, I'm just kind of talking generally here. In some cases, many of those churches uh, end up being churches in which people who come initially to faith in Christ, they find an initial entry or gateway, but as they want to grow and mature, they're wanting what? They're wanting something more. You know, after a while, they've, if you know, in fact, Jim can be helpful on this, but this church started as what is termed 
in church growth back in, um, what was it, 86? When was it, in the mid-80s? As a, what they called a seeker-sensitive church. That means that uh, it was a church that was more evangelistically outward-oriented in, in drawing unbelievers into a church setting, but intentionally doing things that uh, perhaps would be a little bit more... Uh, have a little more ease in their uh, coming into a church. So it might focus on roughly about an hour type service or the music. Uh, certainly would the, when the church was built, if, how those boxes in the back um, were, were put in because there, was not, there didn't want to be an emphasis upon you know, money because a lot of people, attitude, church is only after your what? And we are. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but it, so those were put in the back so that it would be low key and it was really tr- built more intentionally on relationships and so not much emphasis upon necessarily Bible teaching per se. But, uh, but again, I don't want to go down. Th- but, but it had its purpose and intent. Now, I'm not saying that's good, bad, because I think God's used that. Some of the, mo- the more, the mothership of that type church movement uh, was Willow Creek Community Church in uh, up in Chicago, and at one time in their heyday, they may had had ten like on Easter Sunday, they might have ten uh, Easter services from Friday to Sunday. I mean, just, and I'm talking about a church, you know, of of you know the auditorium might would seat five thousand, but they would easily be a church of fifteen, twenty, twenty five, you know, whatever. And you have to, I know, argue, you know, okay, well, how much of that is a a church and how much of it's just, you know, kind of coming to a, an audience or whatever. But, but let's be fair and say, okay, that was a church. But one of the things that was interesting about Willow Creek is they had pretty much uh, mastered that seeker model of reaching unbelievers. They come into church and they're like, wow, this is not the church of my grandfather. You know, the music is a much more of you know, contemporary, and the message is kind of a more of a motivational. It's you know has some Bible basis to it. I'm trying to be fair, but it's more motivational type of thing. And so they leave there thinking, "Wow, you know, this is really great." They had cappuccino, and you know, the kids' ministry was like more professional than any daycare, and so it really was catering to those sensory needs and so they came back and after a while many of those people got involved and became members of the church and you know I'm assuming you know converted to Jesus first before they became members but one of the things that that church is and that movement did was did a study and found that many of the people who initially came into that type of church setting that after a period of time of so many years ended up going to other churches. And one of the reasons they found that to be true is because of something that that model, that Willow Creek Seeker model, was not doing. And they recognize it, and I give them credit for, you know, recognizing it, is they were not doing a good job at discipling and growing that person in their faith. So after a while, and I'm being very general here, you know, it's like, I'm not seeking anymore. I haven't been seeking for two years. I'm in. I'm, I'm in the faith, right? I'm a follower of Jesus. But I want something more than just kind of some general 
Does that make sense, what I'm saying? So, so naturally, they began to, maybe they started listening to somebody on the radio, a Bible teacher. Maybe they got involved in a, in a K-Arth or a, a Bible fellowship type Bible study. And all of a sudden, their appetite was whetted. They wanted more. They wanted to grow in their faith. But then there were others who were quite content to just stay in the, and again, I, this sounds mean-spirited, I'm not trying to do that. But they were content just to stay here and not go any further. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, that isn't the goal of why Christ redeemed us. He wants us to grow. He wants us, and again, all this really is part of sanctification. And he wants us to grow into the deeper things of God. Uh, you know, we talk about theology. Theology is not a, a bad word. Theology is the study about God. And uh, everybody has a theology. It may not be a good theology, but everybody has a theology because it's what you believe about God. It's what you believe about Christ. It's how you, uh, what you believe about the Bible. And so if you're always uh, just kind of never in, or intimidated uh, by any kind of Bible study or any kind of... Uh, Something that might be a little challenging. You know, there's some folks that, uh, you know, uh, that if you um, perhaps, uh, you know, offer something like in a class and they say, oh, you know, I, I, I don't want to take that out. I don't want to be challenged to maybe have to change my mind or something, you know. Uh, hey, it's good to be challenged. If, sometimes if you're challenged or if there's pushback on maybe something you believe, it'll either strengthen what you believe or it might show you some cracks in your, in your belief system and say, hey, I need to rethink that. Rethink that. There's times in which I'm sure in, a, in some setting, even here, where perhaps uh, you, know, you were always taught this way, and all of a sudden you begin to expose yourself to some scripture and maybe uh, in Jim's transformation or whatever it is, and, you, and it forced you to get back into the Word, and you're like, wow, they're... That's taught pretty plain there. So you have a choice. Either reconcile what I always thought or what does the Bible teach. There's some people that just, they're just not interested in that. doesn't mean they're, in my opinion, it doesn't mean they're not believers, but they're just kind of content to just kind of live in that kind of superficial approach. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, I don't want you to live that way. I don't want you to be that way. I want you to get in, and there's things that I wish I could get into and teach you, uh, but I can't because by this time, some of you, you should, by the time, and I think the implication is, is that the amount of time that they've been in the faith, uh, they should, they've been exposed and should be teachers. Doesn't mean everybody was going to be a teacher. He's just, I think, saying that uh, the amount of information you've been exposed to uh, you should be teaching others the scriptures, but you can't. You still need people to spoon feed you. You still need people to to give you the Gerber. Uh, you know uh, what, what's the grossest Gerber food? Is it the carrots or the peas or that green slime, whatever that nasty stuff is? Um, you know, most. I remember when my boys were little. Every suit coat I had had little stains all up in here. Lots of. Lots of uh, Gerber regurgitation there. Um, but you know, the Word of God, someone said this about the Bible, and I'll move on. Someone has said that the Bible is like an ocean. 
deep enough to drown an elephant, but shallow enough at the shore for a toddler to play. So there's deep things of God that, uh, and, and mind you, and you've heard me say this, it isn't just deep to be intellectually arrogant or a snob because you know a lot of stuff. But if the, your study of the Word of God, if it's just uh, linear, there's a problem. But if it's not uh, vertical in the sense that you're learning about God is causing you to love and grow in worship of God and to become more godly, then there's something, there's a disconnect there. So it isn't just intellectual exercise, uh, but it's growing in godly, growing in God in order to be growing in godliness. Paul uh, said, and I think I might have the reference there, you can just listen as I read it, uh, even though we're not saying Paul wrote this in Hebrews. He very well could have because a very similar wording is used in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1 and 3, when he writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Very similar to Hebrews here, but this is in 1 Corinthians 3. Uh, I fed you with milk, he says, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, and you not of the flesh, and be, and you uh, you not of the flesh, and behaving only in a human way. So he's saying that your actions and your attitudes reveal your spiritual childishness. You know, in in pastoral ministry. Uh, Sometimes you're, you're taken back by people that you expect more in their spiritual maturity in handling uh, a situation, and then they respond in a way that's very childish or very immature. And sometimes that still to this day catches me surprise. And, and there's one thing that, remember James says about the testing of your faith? What is testing for? It reveals... Uh, it reveals things, just like a, a pop quiz will reveal whether you studied uh, the night before or not. Or a testing of a structural, uh, it will reveal the weight of it, it will reveal the cracks and crevices and areas that are uh, weak. So the testing of your faith, sometimes God allows strife and conflict to come into our life because he ha it has a way of testing uh, whether we're still swimming in the kiddie pool, or we're mature? Have we responded in a biblical, mature, godly way? And if we haven't, then it should reveal to us that, hey, there's still some areas that I need to grow up in, all right? Any comments on that? Look at number three, Christian growth is directly related to obedience to the truth that we have already learned. Some folks want to learn new stuff, but they haven't mastered the old stuff. Right? I want to learn all the secrets of the book of Revelation, but I can't get along with my husband or my wife. You know, I mean, or, uh, or I bounce around church after church because I'm always creating conflict or whatever, but they want to get into all these deep things. I've known people that unfortunately use church activities and even Bible studies as a way of escaping responsibility. 
Does that make sense? Because, again, nobody's going to, you know, they're, they're, they're in church and they're, they're at every Bible study. They're at everything, you know, going on. And you think, wow, they've got such a solid faith. But yet, they are babies when it comes into the application of that truth. I mean, I've known believers. They've got more notebooks on conferences and Bible studies than they know what to do with. But yet they still struggle to get along with their spouse and kids. And they, they seem to have trouble being committed to a local church. Because after about three or four months, they stir up strife in some measure. Always starts in the kitchen. I don't know what now. I don't know. But it always something will cause a dust up. And they're going to leave that church and pursue the perfect church. And now they've found the perfect church and it's called YouTube. All right? So, uh, uh, but that shows an immaturity. Listen, when you're part of a local church, you're part of a mixture of, again, just like this audience, you've got believers, unbelievers, and immature believers. And you who are mature, you are required to act like a grown-up. And you can't take your toys and go down to the church, you know, down the road. After a while, there's no more churches down the road because you've already been to all of them. Um, and there are some people, they end up not doing or going anywhere. But you know what? As a mature believer, you don't have that luxury just to sit it out. You don't have that luxury just to disappear. Sometimes being involved in a church and community of believers and the sanctifying work that God does in using the church, guess what? Sometimes it's messy. Have you found that to be true? Sometimes it's just messy. But you grow, and hopefully in all those situations you're growing. Look at verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Um, the New American Standard says, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The NIV says, is not acquainted with the teaching of about righteousness. In other words, they're unskilled because they don't put into practice what they have already learned. Believers in Christ will show progress in righteousness as they are obedient to the truth. No obedience, uh, you're just kind of stuck. I found that Sometimes the Lord will remind me that things that I want to move forward on, He's saying, I'm still waiting you to I'm still waiting for you to obey the last thing I told you to do. Right? And I'm wanting more. I'm wanting this, that, and the other and go deep. No, I'm still wanting you to I'm still wanting you to obey what what was the last thing I showed you. Um I'll read Ephesians a few. I'm not sure if I have it written out there, but Ephesians 5 um, speaks about, says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Talking about those who are not walking as believers. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern 
what is pleasing to the Lord. So this, this idea of being skilled in the word of righteousness also implies that there is an understanding, that there is a discernment concerning what is good and what is evil. Um, in verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You might say, well, you know, everybody knows what good and evil is. Really? Have you watched television in the last five years? <laughs> you know? um, and see, it says that, that maturity, with maturity, I sound like a genius when I'm talking to my 28-year-old son waxing eloquently on advice as if I obeyed that advice when I was his age. But I sound like a genius. Why am I a genius? Because I'm 60 and I've learned some terrible lessons by my stupidity in life. And I've learned to discern. How? By getting skilled and doing the right thing and learning some things. Hopefully the same thing is with you. And so our ability as people just chronologically who are older, we have an ability to be more discerning about well, you know, that doesn't really sound right. Are you sure that's all you have to pay on that? That's something down south. Have you read the have you read the whole contract? Are you you know, because we've been down that road. We know that so just in a spiritual sense, as we mature, as we grow, what what has grown with us? Our the word of God, our knowledge of the word of God, and our skill at being discerning to what is good and what is evil. That's one of the things a mature believer um, has going for them, is discernment. And you know, discernment isn't just knowing right from wrong. That, that's part of it. You, it's knowing right from almost right. Do you understand? Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Because most of you, you've been a Christian long enough that something that's just blatant, you're like, well, you, you don't need, you know, you can figure that out. Where the deception comes in and where discernment is necessary as a mature person who is able to discern and think biblically and able to start looking at situations and and life through biblical categories and being able to understand Scripture and where the Word of God teaches that because you're growing, you're maturing, and all of a sudden you can see things that maybe on the surface maybe seem to be okay, but that discernment enables you to see that little small discrepancy in something, that little small error scripturally uh, because why? Because you're a mature person spiritually. You know, in the natural, a young person, the Bible even talks about this, about the value of young women partnering with older women in the faith. Why? Because whether it's older women or older men, they've learned a few things about life. They've learned a few things about suffering and hardship and raising kids and Etc., etc., etc. 
So we, we want to hook up with people that are more mature because they've walked a little further spiritually than we have. So what he's saying in verse 14 is that solid food, this growing, is for people that are mature. And because they can eat solid food, their powers of discernment have been trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. You remember in 2 Corinthians, talking about discernment, why discernment is so necessary. 2 Corinthians 11. Look in your Bibles. Do I have it printed out? 2 Corinthians 11. Do I have it in your, Do I have it printed? Or Okay, look over to 2 Corinthians. It's right after 1 Corinthians. Or as Donald Trump, Trump would say, 2 Corinthians. Poor Donald. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12 through 14. Second Corinthians 11, verse 12. And what am I doing? I will continue to do. Paul is talking about those that are undermining his apostleship. By what I'm picking it up a little bit here in the middle. Um, he says, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, they're, they're false imposters, because he says, verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 14, familiar verse, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So that's why you're to be skilled to grow and mature in the faith, to mature in the Word of God, you to become skilled in the Word of God, skilled in your exposure, skilled in your growth into maturity, because Satan uh, is a deceiver. Uh, Satan disguises uh, himself and himself or whatever falsehoods as truthfulness. There's no warning label from the Surgeon General. You know, this comes from Satan and it will destroy you. It doesn't work that way. Number four, Christian growth requires laying a foundation of doctrine and then building on it. Now, I'll be honest with it. You can, if I gave you 15 commentaries on Hebrews on this section, you would have 15 different ways that commentators and people, scholars, have interpreted some of these passages of Scripture. So, um, so some of it we just have to, uh, I think, so I'm going to kind of take a little bit more of a general understanding. But he lays out, remember what he's saying, is that you need to move on from spiritual kindergarten. And he lays out uh, six things, I've kind of got, got them in groups of two, three groups of two, uh, that are kind of foundational, or you might want to say elementary teachings. He's not saying any of these things are wrong. You're to throw these out. But what is he, what's his point? Remember the context. Remember what his point is. 
He's wanting them to grow up. He's wanting you and I to grow up. He's wanting us to mature. He's not wanting us to be 28 years old and still in kindergarten or first grade. Reading about see Jack run. Jack has a ball. It is a red ball. I mean, you might be the head of your class doing that, but that's not growing at 28 years old to be in first grade doing that. So what is he saying? He says, look, there are some of these basic things, but you need to move beyond repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And when he talks about repentance from dead works, he's talking about that initial, uh, and, and some have speculated that because this was a Jewish audience, one of the things they were perhaps uh, struggling with in their immaturity that he's seeking to correct is, you know, under the Jewish system, you, you sinned, well, you went and you took a sacrifice to the temple or to the priests and sacrifice and atone for your sin. And every time you sinned and every time you wanted to get right with God, you had to go through that, that, that ritual, okay? And maybe they're transferring that instead of thinking that every time they sin, every time they disobey God, they kind of got to get resaved all over again, all right? He's saying, look, you need to move beyond repentance from dead works. Yes, that is a necessity uh, of the gospel. Repent. Repentance. Jesus uh, speaks about repentance and dead works, meaning self-righteous dead works. That's what's dead works. Dead works are things that I do to somehow make myself righteous, which I can't do. And faith toward God. That's kind of just the, the A of the ABC of Christianity. He's not saying forget it, but he's, remember he'll talk about laying the foundation um, this is a foundation. You don't need to come back and keep building the foundation. Once you lay a foundation of a house that you've built or see or a building, um, then you build the structure on it. You don't have to keep. You don't have to keep coming back and keep laying a new foundation. You lay the foundation and you start putting the the building up. That's what he's saying here. Is so you need to move beyond just the your initial repentance and faith toward God. You need to. It isn't that you're getting saved all over again. Then he talks about instruction about washings and laying on of hands. The word washings is the word baptismos. Now, what word do you think we get from baptismos? <laughs> so he's saying about baptism or baptisms. Um, certainly, the Bible talks about uh, there's one baptism. We have been baptized into Christ. But then there's also water baptism. So I think it makes sense that as he's linking this to that initial repentance and coming to faith in Christ, faith in God, getting saved, if you will, he's giving instruction and saying, look, you don't have to be rebaptized. You know, well, I profess Christ and I went through a couple of years and I, I want to get rebaptized, like I want to get resaved all over again. Well, that's not necessary. Um, and uh, laying on of hands. Now, it's interesting, even though this, um, um, I wouldn't build too big of a, a case for this, but let me just say it this way is that remember, this is, um, uh, we don't know what if any of the uh, writings of Paul and remember the church is at a very early stage in its development theologically. But in some form of measure, there is a link in the New Testament 
uh, language-wise, to the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, give you some example. Turn to I'll have we'll just stay in Acts. I'm going to have you run through Acts a little bit. Find Acts at chapter eight. Acts chapter eight. And we're just going to stay in Acts, but I just want to show you some different ways that laying on of hands and how, in some measure, uh, it's connected to the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying? Is that we need to move on from the foundation of salvation, repentance, baptism, you know, the initiation of being identified in Christ and uh, the fullness and the giftings of the Spirit. He's kind of, it makes sense that these things, are these are these core basic things. Uh, chapter 8, verse 14, um, uh, look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them uh, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. Okay, so remember, uh, the implication is they are saved, but in this setting, they have not received the Holy Spirit. Uh, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then they, the apostles, Peter and John, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Uh, verse 18, now when Simon saw that the Spirit was, and again, I want you to pay attention to the language used in Acts, was given through the laying on of hands, uh, that's when he offered them money, because he like it was a trick or something, all right? But all I want you to see is the connection of the laying on of hands with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying... That's necessarily how we receive the Holy Spirit now, but in this context, there's a connection in the way the writer of Hebrews is using it. The laying on of hands is referring to that reception of the Holy Spirit, okay? That's the only thing I want you to see here. Go over to chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. Uh, and you see it used in a little different way, but you see it used uh, in a miraculous setting, 9, 12. Uh, and as he has seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in. This is uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, in this vision, Ananias came in and laid his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Skip down to verse 17, Acts 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying, talking about uh, Ananias laying his hands on Paul, Saul, and laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then it says, and immediately scales fell from his eyes. Again, just seeing the link in the laying out of hands with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Go to chapter 19, Acts 19, verse 5. Acts 19, verse 5. This is in, uh, I believe, Ephesus. Acts 19, verse 5 and 6, on hearing this, they were baptized, water baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Again, we're talking about Hebrews, the moving beyond the laying on of hands and moving beyond the, the initial uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit. I just want you to see how... That's used here. And then the last we'll look at in Acts is Acts 28. And this is uh, used in terms of a, uh, an anointing, of a healing. Acts 28, verse 8. Acts 28, verse 8. It happened that the father of 
Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. Uh, you know that the Bible says in uh, 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul tells Timothy, do not be hasty in, laying on, in the laying on of hands uh, of somebody who uh, is a novice to the faith. Laying on of hands. Again, remember in the Old Testament how the priests would lay their hands upon the animal that would be sacrificed as though there was some type of transference or the sin upon that animal. Again, laying on of hands. We saw how in the apostolic time in Acts it was connected to the reception of the Holy Spirit. It was uh, laying hands of healing. And here in Paul's reference, laying on of hands in the set of setting apart or anointing somebody for ministry. In fact, remember in Paul uh, told Timothy to not neglect the spiritual gift that is in you that was given to you through the what? Laying on of hands. So again, I'm not going to go out, and, but I'm just saying that laying on of hands seems to flow emphasis upon, look, we need to move on from repentance. We, we've repented. We've been saved. Uh, we've repented from self-righteous works. We've received and faith towards God. We've, um, we don't need to lay the foundation about water baptism, about identifying with Christ. Um, and we don't need to talk about the receiving and the walking and the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Again, he's saying these like basic principles. And the last thing he says is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Resurrection of the dead. That means, you know, again, that because of the resurrection, we'll be raised to new life. Um, they didn't have access to 1 John 5. But remember when we studied about 1 John 5 and the return of Christ, that the dead in Christ will rise first, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So it's almost as though in kind of a thumbnail, he's given like the very basic core. If you had, a, if you had uh, to do a uh, basic Christians class, you would include all six of these things in that class. You with me? And why is he mentioning that? He's not saying that those things are not important, but he's saying, look, that's, that's like learning the alphabet. I want to teach you to read Shakespeare, but you're still trying to figure, you're still A, B, C, D, you're still learning your vowels. And, you, you know, you need to move on. You need to grow up. You need to move on from those elementary. And then the last is number five is that Christian growth does not automatically happen, but we need to take responsibility. It takes deliberate effort along with God's enabling. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. And again, here it is, trained. How are they training in this powers of discernment of the deep things of God? Because their training, their training is by constant Practice. That speaks of deliberate effort. And I have Philippians 2 there. I'll close with that. Because when he says in, in, verse, uh, in verse 3, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 3, and he said, and this we will do if God permits. So even though he's couching it in taking responsibility, 
in that verse 3, it's as though he's making sure it's all uh, that beneath this whole process is God's power working in our lives. Okay, he's wanting to make sure he's not saying this is some self-effort. Yes, it is, it is deliberate responsibility we take. But then he says, verse 3, if God permits, as though he's saying, look, it's all, all of this, all this growing, all this maturing, all this moving forward is all based upon God strengthening us. And Philippians 2, 12 through 14, certainly reminds us of that. I think it's the last thing on your, your outline. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's the responsibility. But, verse 13, for it is God who, what? works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So the writer of Hebrews is covering a lot of things from, to a lot of different people. You've got in this church group, you've got people that are trying to figure out if they want to be Christians, those that are struggling and deciding whether they are Christians or whether the persecution is just revealing their shallow, uh, superficial faith. And then you have those that are genuine believers, but they're facing the same suffering and hardship, and they're needing encouragement. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to cover all those bases, but he knows that these believers that are serious about their faith, if there's not a growing and maturing in their walk with Christ, if they're still trying to struggle with what it means to get saved and, and, and can't move beyond that, then there certainly is not going to be any depth in understanding the richness of, of the Word of God that he's trying to, he's trying to teach them and encourage them with. So uh, I hope that you and I always have some level of a holy dissatisfaction, that you're always wanting to, to read something, grow, um, read, read hard things, read things that are going to make your mind squeal because it's hard. You read paragraphs more than once because there's... There's depth and richness in a book that's teaching you about the Word of God. Everything can't be Max Lucado. Again, I'm not knocking Max Lucado. I'm saying, but if that's the depth of your theology, well, God bless him. I mean, Max Lucado is a great writer, but that's not, that's not much depth. Start with somebody like A.W. Tozer, T-O-Z-E-R. I mean, the thing about A.W. Tozer, he's, he's very... Uh, accessible, but his his book on the pursuit of God, the existence and attributes of God, any of those things, you'll find a depth there. But what I love about Tozer, why I always recommend A.W. Tozer, is because most of all his books are taken from, uh, he used to be the editor of the Christian Missionary Alliance magazine, and so all of his books were really taken from his columns that he wrote as a magazine editor, and most of the chapters in all his books are no more than maybe three, three and a half to four pages. So somebody that wants to, you know, swim a little more in, the, in, some, in deeper waters in their reading and growing in their faith, I always think that somebody like Tozer, because he's very warm and devotional, but at the same time, there's a depth there that uh, will challenge you. And so that may be a good place to start. So.